you could stand for the reading of scripture and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 1 through 5. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Here in Serena, God's word, you may be seated. Let's go before the Lord and ask for his help in your hearing and in my preaching this morning. Lord God, we pray by the presence of your Holy Spirit that you would impart to us your grace this hour, enabling me the ability to speak your glorious truth to these your dear people, that they might be sanctified in the truth, for your word is truth, and to bring to life anyone who's listening, who are yet dead in their transgressions and sins, that they might be brought to life in Christ this day. Pray for his sake. Amen. Uh, we continue our exposition of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, where schisms had fractured the fellowship of the Corinthian congregation. A divisive spirit. Has, had caused factions to form within that body. Many of them were devoting themselves to their favorite teacher, to their preferred preacher, saying, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Paul. And Paul asked, what, was Paul crucified for you? I don't think so. Chapter 1, verse 12, is what begins this section, this argument, with regard to schisms within the church. Now, the leaders of the church were all biblically sound. The problem was not with the leaders. It wasn't between Apollos and Paul and Cephas. It was the people. Looking down, as it were, on others claiming to be the more spiritual ones. And this was really all um, personality and in gifts driven, which exposes an even deeper problem, and that is the problem that is at the heart of all sin, and, and that is pride. Pride. And if not nipped in the bud, then and to this very day, will eventually lead with any local assembly to a Christless Christianity, which I'll talk more about as we proceed through the service this morning. Now, in order to strip them of their pride, um, to counter their boasting, their arrogance, and their factions within, Paul wants to bring them down a couple notches by highlighting three aspects of why they are Christians in the first place. And the first for which they have nothing to glory in themselves about, is 
the gospel message itself. The medium also of the gospel, which is proclamation of Christ crucified. So the gospel, it's medium, and God's calling them to himself, none of which they had anything to do with whatsoever. You were called by God's grace. In all of those things, the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, and those who are called by way of the gospel, that is by the Holy Spirit's effectual call, all of those things are weak and foolish to a lost and dying world. He said that, that is the power of God on display for those he calls to himself. In other words, you have nothing to boast about, Corinthians. In chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, Paul, again, reminds them that the church's message is weak and foolish by worldly standards. The message of the cross, that is, the message of a weak, suffering Savior, in the world's eyes is ridiculous. And it is to this day. The substance and strategy of God, that is the preaching of that message, what I'm doing right now, proclamation, the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is also weak and foolish to those who are perishing. But, verse 24, chapter 1, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is the power, and this is the wisdom of God. In other words, this is the only means of salvation for fallen, sinful mankind. Jesus Christ and him crucified, raised the third day. Faith and trust in him alone. Your righteousness comes from outside of you. That's the good news. You had nothing to do with that, Corinthians. Nothing to do with that, did you? Pacific Hope Church. That's what grace is. And then in verses 26 to 31, um, in again, in contrast to the Corinthian boasting, he reminds the members of the church that by the world's estimation, they too are foolish. Because he said in verse 26, chapter 1, look at it, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise, not many powerful, not many were of noble birth. Instead, what? God shows the, the foolish things of the world, that is the nobodies in this life, to bring the things that are to nothing in the end. To confound the wise. That is, those who are wise in their own eyes, God has called you. And apart from God's grace, people cannot understand what the cross is, beloved. It's the power of God on, on display to save sinners from everlasting destruction. That's what grace does, does it not? What does grace expose? Grace exposes all of us for what we are. We are powerless and we are impotent to do anything for ourselves that enables us to stand in a right place before God and be accepted by him, powerless. Grace exposes us 
as weak and helpless and being poor in spirit. And blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Those who realize that they are morally bankrupt, that's what grace does. John Stott said a number of years ago, the gospel of the cross will never be a popular message because it humbles the pride of our intellect and character. End of quote. Friends, when we look at the cross, we are shown the wreckage of human pride. Self-esteem, self-trust, self-righteousness are all shattered at the cross. And by God's grace, through the preaching of the cross, that is how we learn of our sin, we learn of our guilt, we learn of our lostness, we learn that our debt to creator God is an infinite one. And only he can pay it by way of his son. If you've come to that place of understanding, it is because of sheer grace. You're enabled to see the cross for what it is, and that is God reconciling the world to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Corinthians, you have nothing to boast about. These factions are ridiculous. This is the power of God, the preaching of the gospel. But to a lost and dying world, the message is weak and foolish. The medium preaching is weak and foolish. The members that make up the church are weak and foolish. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, this is kind of the capstone of his argument here. The church's ministry is also weak and foolish in the eyes of the world. So the message, the medium preaching, the members and the ministry of the church are weak and foolish to a lost and dying, perishing world, but it is the power of God for the people of God. This is how you keep God's people on course. Then and now, you preach Christ and him crucified. Or you have a Christless what? Christianity. Okay, highlighting the fact here that nobody can boast in themselves. The Corinthians cannot boast in their leaders, whether you are associated with Paul or Apollos or Cephas, um, or today, whether you identify with your favorite internet preacher or not. Because any boasting, verse 31, chapter 1, look at it. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, as he continues his argument, serves as a pattern for Christian ministry and Christian preaching to this very day. And what Paul is laying out here for us is relevant for us, just as relevant as it was in the first century. Amen? You remember when we started our study in Corinthians? I said the reason we're going to study Corinthians is not because there's divisions within this church, but we live in a day not unlike 
the church in Corinth. Very, very similar. Therefore, it's easy to be deceived, and therefore, Scripture is filled with warnings to God's people not to be what? Not to be what? Deceived. By false gospels. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, his first sermon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London said this, quote, I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ, who is the sum and substance of the gospel, who is Himself, all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth, the all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. End of quote. So here then, in verses 1 and 2 of, cha- of chapter 2, we have the church's ministry, and that is the subject of biblical preaching. The subject of biblical preaching. And notice Paul begins in the negative. Verse 1. Okay, now he ended the last verse, 31. Anyone who boasts, let him boast in this, right? That you know me. Boast in the gospel. Boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Literally, it reads, and I coming to you, I came not like this. Okay, arguing that the same way the gospel came to you is the intent I had when I came into your presence. And that is not to be impressive, not to be spectacular, but to be straightforward. People don't like straightforwardness in our day. Go figure. He did not come, he says, with eloquence. He did not come with worldly wisdom, which, by the way, were very, very popular in the Corinthians' day. Through sophists and rhetoricians. That is, through traveling philosophers and polished orators. I did not come to you like that, he said. The thing that you're craving, the things you desire. Now, what he's not saying is that I came speaking to you as children with condescending inferiority of speech. He's not saying that. What he means is that he did not come with the eloquence and the rhetoric designed to merely persuade one's opinion. Because the aim of the rhetorician in this day was to change a person's opinion. I did not come to you like that, he said. Ray Ortland points out the fact that classic rhetoric was not truth-driven, but results-driven. The intent, once again, to merely change one's opinion. Where do we see that today? Politics. Politics, political rhetoric, the aim of which is emotional manipulation. 
moving you and your opinion into the field of political correctness. Forget truth. That's the aim. Now, the Corinthians' problem, beloved, is that they had come to love this method. See, that was power to them. The power of the rhetorician to change one's opinion through flashy oratory. They loved this. Paul says, I did not come. I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I came proclaiming, I came testifying of God's mighty saving work in Jesus Christ and him alone. Friends, may that never become old news to us. May that never become a stale message. Christ crucified. I did not come with fancy oratory. I did not come with polished rhetorical skill. That is the world's wisdom. I came preaching Christ. Now, friends, the Corinthians had embraced the gospel, no doubt. This is the church. They had embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ through the gift of faith, but they were struggling to give up their pagan thinking. Much of the church today has not yet given up their pagan ways of thinking. Therefore, we must be washed by way of the word, week in and week out. And it all begins with this guy. I'm only at the place of elevation up here, not because I'm above you. This is what's above you. This is what's above me, the word of God. That's why pulpits are elevated. It's not the man. There's no power in the man. The power's in the word of God that comes through the man who's called to be faithful to that word. So they'd embrace the gospel, struggling in wanting the wisdom of the day, polished rhetoric. Now, the irony here is that Paul was offering these Corinthians the very thing that the Greek, this Greek and Roman influenced people wanted true wisdom. This is true wisdom, not worldly wisdom. But whenever the word of God was preached, that is the cross, that is God's only way to deal with sin and sinners, this very Greek-thinking group didn't want to hear Paul's straightforward message with regard to the gospel. And under cultural pressure that despised any conversation about crucifixion, it was abhorrent to even discuss in polite company. Under that kind of pressure, it was no longer to their liking because that message did not meet their felt needs. Sound familiar? Or so they thought. So he moves from the negative now to the positive in verse 2. For I did determine, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, I purposed to know nothing else. I was resolved not to provide you what you wanted, sophistry and rhetoric. 
I was resolved to give you what you need, not what you want. Isn't that beautiful? You just love this brother. Now, he's not saying all I ever preached about was the crucifixion. In other words, you know, every sermon is that, you know, Jesus died for your sins. He loves you. He has a plan for your life. Repeat this prayer after me. Come forward and be saved. But all they talked about was everything else. But they throw that in at the end. That's like playing a one-string guitar. This statement, I preached Christ, nothing but Christ, is consistent with what Paul says elsewhere. Remember, he had spent three years in Ephesus. Remember our study of Acts. And in Acts chapter 20 and verse 27, he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the what? The whole counsel of God. The whole counsel. Preaching Christ and him crucified is the same thing as preaching the whole counsel of God. Remember I said last Lord's Day, beloved. The cross is the eye of the needle through which all the promises of God come to us. The one who came and fulfilled the law. The one who was crushed by God, Isaiah 53, in our place condemned he stood. Where we receive the forgiveness of sins. Justification. Sanctification. Union with God through Christ. Adoption as sons and daughters of God in Christ. And future glorification. The eye of the needle is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ, the sum and substance of the gospel, the incarnation of every precious truth, as I quoted Spurgeon just moments ago. Now, if Paul was preaching the law, Romans 10 in verse 4, he preached Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If he was preaching on the subject of marriage, modeled husbands, model wives, where did he go? He talked about Christ and him crucified, Ephesians 5. Every topic goes back to Christ. The entire Old Testament points forward to the person and work of Christ by type, by shadow, by analogy. Jesus Christ is on display throughout the Old Testament. Every subject goes back to Christ. All subjects are fulfilled by Christ. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and the psalmists. It's Christ. Paul preached Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, we proclaim him. Amen? Paul preached Christ and he had the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't written yet. Christ been crucified for you. Now, Paul, he, he specifies Christ crucified here because the Corinthians wanted to move away from the very uncouth message of the bloody, grotesque cross. It had become somewhat of an embarrassment to them. And without the showing of hands, let me ask you, have you ever been embarrassed about the cross? And of course, we will all say at one time or another, yes, we have when it comes to declaring that is the only means of God's salvation to others, we shudder a little bit. Why? Because we know that that is a foolish message to people who are perishing. That is not worldly wisdom. 
It is godly wisdom. What do we do when we fail? Repent. Receive God's forgiveness and move on. Move on. See, in their minds, they were moving on to higher wisdom. They were moving on to deeper spiritual things. Yes, we know, Paul, the cross is back there. We understand that. But we're, we're moving on. You know why? Because we, the Corinthians, you know what we are? We are triumphal spiritualists. Now, Paul's going to address that in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Paul says, you'd better back up. Corinthians, you'd better back up. The one I preach to you is the one who has been crucified for you. Get your eyes back on the cross, you bunch of boasters, spiritual triumphalists. You see that in our day? Yes, you do. Now, as Paul proceeds, remember, He's talking to a people given to the cult of personality. So to a people given to the cult of personality, he he could easily have exalted himself. Paul, a man who had a double PhD by the time he was 21, scholar, brilliant. But instead, verse 3, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. Remember our study of Acts? Paul goes through Thessalonica. He goes through Berea. He goes into Athens. Not much of a response to the gospel of Jesus Christ with the philosophers of the day. And he flees for Corinth for the sake of his very life. And when he arrived in Corinth, the brother needed some rest. Remember, he's already been to Corinth. He's writing a letter to them, a place he's already been. And although Paul did not fear man because he feared God, he nevertheless was merely a man. Amen? Paul was a man, and he struggles with fear and weakness as the rest of us do. Think about this. Paul, having been stoned three times, having been beaten with rods three times, having received 39 lashes five times, having been shipwrecked three times, actually four times, along with repeated cycles of mob violence and imprisonments, the brother's a little jumpy. (laughs) A little fearful. I came to you in weakness and fear and in trembling, but more than all of that, beloved... His weakness was in having been stripped of all self-reliance. Relying not on himself. Relying not on his academic credentials, not on his apostleship. He was the apostle. He was dependent solely, completely, absolutely on Christ and him what? Crucified. And in 2 Corinthians 12, it's that kind of weakness where we find what? Strength. His power is made perfect in human weakness. So here then, in fear and much trembling, 
He preaches in humility the glory and majesty of God in Christ, the opposite of the exalted pride and strength of the sophisticated academia of the day in Corinth, along with the traveling sophists in golden-tongued rhetoricians of the day, I came in weakness. The Corinthians were easily impressed by those things. Look at our day. We too are easily impressed, aren't we? We're impressed when we sing a, a, see a, a string of letters after somebody's name. Academic credentials. More degrees than a thermometer. And we're like, oh. We're easily impressed by titles, roles, fame, fortune. We're like, ooh. And they could tell a string of lies and we'll say, yeah, but, you know, look at their degrees. <laughs> Please. Paul says, I came not trying to impress you. The world comes and you're impressed by them. I came to diligently proclaim God, to testify of him, to testify of his Christ, to, 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 to bring glory to his name through his finished work. And verse 4, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, the context, beloved, of demonstration of the Spirit's power is not signs and wonders as um, modern-day Pentecostals teach. That's not the demonstration of the Spirit's power. It's not mood lights. It's not dramatic presentations as the evangelical church in our day claims. They think that's power. That's not power. That's emotional manipulation. There's no power in that. It's sound preaching. That's his point. His point, through the scandalous message of the cross of Jesus Christ, where God's wisdom and power is revealed, the Holy Spirit manifests his power as God effectually calls sinners to himself. That's the demonstration of power. And you all, Corinthians, are the demonstration. You're the example of that. God came to you, and the church now has been born in Corinth, made up of Greeks and Jews. Not many wise, not many noble, but God has called the foolish things in the world to confound the wise. Amen. So Paul is talking about the power of biblical preaching. And the power behind biblical preaching is God the Holy Spirit. And I came in weakness, and therefore the Spirit was on display. And remember this, beloved. Weakness was not a virtue in Corinth. Human wisdom says weakness is not a virtue. It was not a virtue to the church in Corinth because weakness was not a virtue to the Greek and Roman culture. It was loathed. It was to be avoided. So the Corinthian church had bought into the values and the virtues of the culture. Does that sound familiar? 
modern Americans are much like the Greeks of Paul day, of Paul's day, and they, had, they, they also have a love for worldly wisdom. People in our day have a love for worldly wisdom. And as a result, we, like the Corinthians, tend to evaluate preachers and sermons based on how they make us feel. You see this today? How they make us feel, rather than the minister being faithful to the text he is preaching. That's out the door. Most people don't care about that. Make me feel good. We live in a day when even Christians are not interested in the meaning of the word. They're not interested in doctrine and consequently resorting to worldly wisdom. Preaching just becomes another form of entertainment. This is what the Corinthians' problem was. They wanted entertaining preaching. Was the preacher funny? Well, I'll go to your church, I'll think about it, but is your preacher funny? If you're coming here looking for me to be funny, you can leave now because you're going to be disappointed. Was the preacher entertaining? Did I experience a stirring of my emotions? I didn't get anything out of worship today. That's your problem. Worship's not for you. We're here to worship God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're providing the worship. You're not here to be worshiped. You give, you don't get. You're sanctified by the word of God properly preached. Set apart and you grow up out of immaturity, as we'll see in a number of weeks. See, all of this, you know, with the stirring of my emotions, how did I feel? Was he funny? Was the church time entertaining? That is worldly criteria for worldly wisdom, not godly wisdom. See, the desire of every Christian who knows what their soul needs when they go to a church is give me Christ. Preach Christ, preacher. Preach the whole counsel of God, preacher. Soothe my soul. Show me Christ. Genesis to Revelation. Show me Christ. This was Paul's resolve. I'm not here to whoop you up. I'm here to minister to your soul with the word of God, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. I'm not here to manipulate this audience. I'm not here to play on your emotions. I'm here to preach Christ. In other words, friends, Paul had no interest in packaging his preaching in the style that the Corinthians preferred. You see this? To tickle their ears. See, the culture of the day was used to and desirous of these traveling sophists, and as I said, these rhetoricians who would speak in the town square, lecture halls, trade guilds, and social clubs of the day. And there was a particular style, a recognized pattern of speech that they would be lured by. And that, therefore, is what they looked for. Rhetoricians. 
So you would be a sought-after speaker in Paul's day, a valued speaker based on your ability to master those tricks of the trade. See what's going on here? Which D.A. Carson says was high-sounding insight with precious little content. See, that's our day, is it not? Just like the Corinthians. We live in the soundbite generation. We can't stay focused more than 22 minutes, the average time of a sitcom. 22 minutes. So D.A. Carson says this, to, to continue, those who pursue eloquence and high-sounding insight with precious little content are often, doing, are often doing little more than preening their own feathers. End of quote. Today as well, beloved. False teachers run rampant in our day. And maybe you're here like, oh, here he goes again. That's right. That's right. And it's for your protection. It's not because of my pride. It's for your protection as I proceed on and name some names. Because Christians, one after another, are dropping like flies under false teaching. And they don't even know it. False teachers of our day work to feed into and stoke the egos, the conceited egos of fallen mankind. We're conceited enough. We don't need any help. My ego's big enough. Yours is big enough. We don't need help. That's what false teachers do. Realize this, Paul said 2,000 years ago, for 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, <gasps> unloving, <laughs> irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. What's its power? Preaching Christ and him crucified. The word form comes from morphosis, morphosis. And it refers to an outward shape or outward silhouette of something such as the Pharisees of Jesus' day, who Jesus said are hypocrites and they wash the outside of the cup, but they neglect the inside. He's referring, Paul is, to religious fakes who masquerade as Christian leaders, that is, false teachers who hold to a form of godliness. They hold to a form of Christianity without any substance and that is very dangerous for immature believers. They fall prey every time. And they accept, these false teachers, paganized Christianity as true faith. Where's the real power? Paul's made clear. Preach the whole counsel of God. Preach Christ. Friends, never... 
Never will you hear one of these TV preachers of our day, these TBN people, these prosperity gospel people, these word of faith movement people, never will you hear one of these preachers take verse three as a teaching, as a preaching text. I came to you with weakness, fear, trembling. Why not? Because their message is the message of what? Of what? Triumph. Triumph. That is a message of impressive power. That's the message today. And when the church, friends, when the church of Jesus Christ taps into popular cultural speech, worldly wisdom, never completely shedding pagan thinking, that was the Corinthians' problem. When that happens to the church, our focus and attention becomes very myopic. We turn inward until sound theology becomes meology, or the weology of our day, the weology of self-esteem, the weology of self-aggrandizement. And that, my friends, swings the door wide open for false teachers to enter in. And Paul is going to have to address false apostles that make their way into Corinth in his second letter, chapter 11. And it all starts right here. Pride and arrogance and a desire for rhetoric of the day. See this? So what is the rhetoric of our day? The rhetoric of our day invading the church is not like that exactly um, in Corinth, but it comes from, as I said moments ago, the word of faith movement, prosperity gospel, because what they peddle is an occult brand of metaphysics. I want you to listen to the rhetoric being peddled by this gospel prosperity movement which stokes egos. Quote, this comes from a very, very popular word of faith, prosperity preacher of our day. Quote, I've got fire in my belly tonight because I know, I know, I know that there is power in life with right words, that words are containers for power, and I don't care what kind of mess you've got. I'm talking about those things that are not as though they are. That's a twisting of Romans 4.17, which I'll talk about in a moment. Speak to your checkbook. Maybe you need to get it out and say, hear the word of the Lord. You are not going to stay empty all of your life. Ah, oh, somebody says, this is just too weird for me. Well, then stay broke. Because what you're doing isn't working. See the manipulation? Speak to it. Listen, checkbook. You're going to be full and overflowing, and I am going to be blessed, and I am going to be a blessing. End of quote. Classic prosperity gospel, word of faith movement, heresy. All the while, this crowd of 20,000 are applauding and cheering because it sounds good. And guess what? That message does sell. It does bring prosperity. 
but not to the people who are plotting. Only the people who are performing. It does bring prosperity to them. It's a scam, friends. It's a false message. This is a classic give-to-get scheme. It's all over America. Ask, ask our brother, Ray Warwick. Has it not invaded the continent of Africa, my brother? We, this country, invented it. And they pipe it down there. And they rob people blind. What would you do if I taught that from the pulpit? Hopefully you would discern that dude just shredded Romans 4.17. And if I don't repent, run for the hills. Don't come to this church. Get out of here. If I'm preaching that message, but people buy it hook, line, and sinker. Friends, that was just one of numerous examples by one very popular prosperity teacher on TV by the name of Joyce Meyer. Why do so many professing Christians, especially countless women, why are they absolutely captivated by this kind of teaching? Well, it goes back to Paul's day, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. Look at it. From such people, he warns the church, then stay away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, led away by various lusts, always learning, but never, never able to come to the knowledge of truth. This is what Paul is going to have to deal with in Corinth. This kind of thing. Now, the context of that passage, beloved, says just the opposite of how it is craftily used in that message. Do you remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness? What did, tempted, what did Satan use to tempt Jesus with? The word of God, out of context. Look at Romans 4, 17. Let's look at the context. This is a quipping moment. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Who's the father of many nations? Abraham, father Abraham, had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. We'll hold off for VBS next week. So let's all praise the Lord, right arm left. It is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Who calls things into existence? We or God? God. Context. God, who called the universe into existence out of nothing, also called into existence within the barren womb of Sarah, the life of Isaac. Isaac, his one and only son, by way of promise. Eventually, God would test Abraham to sacrifice his son, not as an example for us, but to foreshadow Jesus Christ, who is the ram caught in the thicket so that Isaac and the rest of us could be set free. All scripture points to Christ, not me. 
to be a triumphal spiritualist who can just call things into, into existence, the container of words, and words are power. That's utter nonsense. This is the reason, friends, that Jesus said, beware. Beware of false teachers who come to you in what kind of clothing? Sheep's clothing. They look like the rest of you all. They sound like the rest of you all. But they're wolves. Beware. Now, does she, this Meyer, this Joyce Meyer, and others like her say things sometimes that are true? Of course. So did Balaam. So did his donkey. No one would come if they didn't say something that was true. Friends, a preacher cannot continue to remain faithful to the word of God preached unless he carefully protects its truth. Look what Paul says to Timothy, chapter 6, verse 20. Oh, Timothy, guard. Guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter. Okay, that was the Corinthians problem. And the opposing arguments of what is falsely called what? What were the Corinthians after? Knowledge. Knowledge. This is the lane right here. This is the lane that every faithful preacher stands in, guarding the gospel of Jesus Christ, guarding his truth, and warning God's people of heretics. It's because I love you, not because I'm prideful, as some people have accused me of being. Today, many professing Christians and even Christian leaders no longer believe in the authority of Scripture. Since you like me naming names, let me name another one. <laughs> Rob Bell, whose videos were incredibly popular among evangelical Americans. And back in 2004, I was saying, this is nonsense. And guess what people said to me? That's your pride. Rob Bell has since then bowed to the idol of Oprah. As reported by Stephen Nichols, Bell told a national audience on her Oprah's, that is, Super Soul Sunday, quote, I think the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. It's time for the church to catch up, and in order to do so, we need to look past ancient letters. You know what he says there? He's referring to the Bible. We need to look past Scripture. You know what that is? That leads to a Christless Christianity. Michael Horton, man of God, theologian, sound man of the Word of God, wrote a book entitled Christless Christianity in which he said this, quote, Christless Christianity does not mean religion or spirituality devoid of the words Jesus, Christ, Lord, or even Savior. 
What it means is that the way those names and titles are employed will be removed from their specific location in an unfolding historical plot of human rebellion and divine rescue, rescue, that is, redemptive history, the Bible, and from such practices as baptism and communion. Jesus, as life coach, therapist, buddy, significant other, founder of Western civilization, political messiah, example of radical living, and countless other images can distract us from the stumbling block and foolishness of Christ and him crucified. End of quote. Amen, Dr. Horton. If Paul had decided to be sensitive to the seeking crowds of Corinth, he presumably would have been performing miracles in the morning, signs of an apostle, and in the evenings he would be discussing philosophy with rhetoric flash because he was capable. How do we know that? Look back at chapter 1, verse 22. For indeed... For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Amen. So not only did Paul refuse to give them what they wanted, he continued to supply the very thing they need, the wisdom and power of God. Verse 4, I'm almost done. Don't stop, preacher. (laughs) (laughs) Verse 4, my message and preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power, so that, verse 5, so that, verse 5, so that, verse 5. Your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Not resting on how persuasive someone's rhetoric is, Corinthians, not resting on words that are containers for power, Man's Folly, Dog and Pony Show, American Church, producing false converts, but on the power of God, not on those who twist the gospel, but on the gospel that by the Spirit's power transforms lives, removes hearts of stone replaces them with hearts of flesh. If you don't preach that which is God's power, you nullify his power when you preach another message. Who wants to be guilty of nullifying God's power? Not me. And did you notice the entire passage is is woven with, with Trinitarian truth and power? You have God the Father who sent God the Son to bear his wrath on the cross. The gospel, 
And through the proclamation of that good news comes the demonstration of God, the Holy Spirit, spiritual power, taking away those hearts of stone and replacing them with hearts of flesh. It's a supernatural work of God. So stay the course, preach the word, Paul says, I did not come to you like them. This isn't about us. This is about him who saved us. Receiving the benefits of Christ's redemption, God's power in election, God's power in divine calling, granting us by grace the gift of faith, the gift of justification, the gift of sanctification, union with God through Christ, adopted sons and heirs of Almighty God in and through Christ alone, one day to be glorified just like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the power of God. The unadulterated preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the demonstration of the Spirit's power. And as I said a hundred thousand times, if you want to find a Spirit-empowered, Spirit-led church, you go to one that preaches Christ. Because Jesus said, he, when I send him, will bear witness not of himself, but of me. Let me close with this. There's a story of an old church in England. Above the door of that church was this magnificent sign, carved out, beautiful wood, were these words. We preach Christ crucified. Over the years, the ivy grew up. Ivy's growing up in this beautiful building. It began to encroach upon the sign. Eventually, all that could be read is we preach Christ. As time went on and the ivy continued to grow, eventually all that could be read was, we preach. Before too long, all the sign said was, we. We. As cultural philosophy and rhetoric encroach upon the church of Jesus Christ, peddled by false teachers, the preaching of Christ crucified disappears. And you have a bunch of showy nonsense. It's all about me. It's all about we. But it's not about me and it's not about we. It's about Christ and him crucified. That is the whole counsel of God, which is the only hope for mankind the only hope for you, the only hope for me is Jesus Christ and him crucified, resurrected from the dead the third day. We preach him, not me, not we, but Jesus Christ and him crucified so that we don't succumb to a Christless Christianity. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for these sober reminders. Thank you for faithful men like Paul who ran the race with endurance, who never failed to preach Christ and him crucified. And Lord, I can't do it, nor can anyone in this room do that, but by your grace and the power we, we need to carry on the task, and that is the power of your Holy Spirit. So bless us afresh, I pray, and may the church continue to stay the course, not just this one, but all places that call themselves church to get back to preaching Christ and him crucified so that we will not in any way nullify your power. For this we pray for Christ's sake, for his glory. Amen.